My friends Bob and Jack love to hike. In fact, I met them on a hiking trip several years ago that I took with some girlfriends of mine, and recently we reconnected. And they shared with us that they had just returned from a hiking trip in the English countryside in the Cotswolds. How is it? I said, and they said, well, it was, it was a good trip. It was a really good trip, but it would have been better if we had read the instructions before we went. You see, we just glanced at the page and it said something about 20, and we thought that meant kilometers, but it was actually miles. And so we were woefully underprepared for the length of each day's hike. And also, we didn't read until we got home what it said in the instruction booklet about needing to pack a lunch. We just thought there'd be a place to eat along the route. But then when we got home, it said in the booklet, be sure and ask the owner of the bed and breakfast to pack you a lunch because there won't be any services all along the way. We should have read the instructions, they said. Why is it that we don't like to read the instructions? Why do we prefer oftentimes to go it alone? Two summers ago, my son Connor moved out of the dormitory at college and into a little house with three other students. I need furniture, Mom. So off we went to Ikea. For a full day, Connor and I sat on the floor, glued to the instruction booklet, following step by step the instructions using Dad's borrowed tools to build a bed and a chest of drawers. After about five hours, we had the hang of it, and we each proceeded without consulting the booklet. And this ended up costing us a couple of extra hours as we had to disassemble what we had built because it turns out that IKEA wants you to do it their way or it won't work. Instructions, they seem so boring, so superfluous, so pedantic. Instructions seem like eating kale or flossing your teeth. We know it's good for us, but how much fun is it really? Today's scripture lesson from Psalm 1 says that human happiness comes from meditating on God's instructions. Now, our version, the one that we just read, said that people find their true delight in God's law. But the word law is better translated instruction. And the word meditate is better translated murmur. So we are happy when we murmur on divine instruction. In the ancient world, they never read silently like you and I do when we read a book. They always read aloud in a group, or if they read privately, they would murmur it. They would read it kind of aloud, murmuring the word. And so their version of murmuring the ancient instruction is much like what you and I do when we're going about the house doing some chores and we find ourselves humming a tune or we're in the car or on a run or in the shower and we murmur or we sing a song that carries us through the day. What is it that resonates within us as we go about our ordinary lives? Is it a tune of God's grace that we carry with us in our minds? Or do we meander off course 
letting our mind go to that way that the psalm calls the way of wickedness. It's a silly question, really. Who among us would choose the way of wickedness, the way that perishes, over the delightful way of divine instruction? The psalmist even paints a beautiful picture of a tree planted by a stream of water yielding fruit in due season because this is the image of how God wants us to flourish, to be nourished, to bring out the best in us, to delight the world around us through our own fruitfulness. Who among us would instead choose to be that chaff that the wind blows away? This psalm, Psalm 1, is the opening psalm in a book of psalms which are prayers. And yet, curiously, this first chapter is not a prayer. It's a beatitude, one of those sayings that explains to all of us, this is the way that life goes, this is how it works. Psalm 1, then, is not quite yet the prayer, but an invitation to be in prayer, to be in relationship we all say, yes, 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 God, we want that, but getting there, the transition point, that is what trips us up. Last week, I had a 6.30 p.m. flight to New York. At 1.30 in the afternoon, I got an email from the airline saying that my flight would be two hours delayed, so I knew I would miss my connection. I called the airline, what are the options? The nice agent said, could you come now? Now? I said, like, now, now? And she said, yeah, how close are you to the airport? And I said, I'm on my way. And I went tearing down the hallway, got in my car, put the pedal to the metal, went just a little bit over the speed limit, and within one hour of leaving my office, I was on that plane, going west to get east, but that's another story. <laughs> when I got on the plane, my body was there, but my heart was still racing. It's hard to transition, you know it, to vacation mode when you've been in your busy work productivity mode. I've heard countless families here in the church describe that difficulty of getting to church on a Sunday morning. Little Jordan can't find her shoes, it's time to go. Jonah forgot to eat his cereal. Someone spilled mom's coffee, which is always a bad sign. The clock is ticking. The car still needs gas. We're going to be late to church, somebody says. And by the time the family shows up here in the church parking lot, they don't even like each other, let alone God. <laughs> it's the transition point that hurts. Psalm 1 is the transition point. How shall we move from our ordinary lives where we are in charge, to the spiritual life, where God reigns supreme. How do we shift our hearts from relying on our own strength to relying on God's mysterious power in the midst of life's chaos? How do we even begin to pray? Joshua and his mom, Sarah, faced this same dilemma. About a year ago, Joshua and his mom shared their, so their own story on a podcast called StoryCorps. Now, usually StoryCorps is like a two-minute or less vignette of something that happened in a family's life. But this one was unique because Joshua and his mom recorded a mother-son dialogue 
three different times over the course of 11 years in their lives. In the first interview, Joshua is 12 years old, an honor student in the eighth grade, struggling to make friends because he has Asperger's. His mom hesitates when she hears her son ask him tough questions like, Mom, did I turn out to be the son you wanted when I was first born? Mom Sarah is honest and straightforward. She says, Honey, you exceeded my expectations. When Joshua graduated from high school and went to college, he began to spiral downward. Mom Sarah didn't know what to do. She didn't know if she should go to college and pack him up in the car and bring him home or leave him there to figure it out. He clammed up. He wouldn't take her calls. He wouldn't talk to anybody. She began to worry that he would inflict harm upon himself. She decided maybe if they went back on StoryCorps, he would talk to her on tape and share what was going on in his heart. And he agreed. Joshua said on the air, Mom, I don't even know why I'm in college. He was so lonely. I miss the dog, he said. Do you miss me too? Yeah, Mom, but I miss the dog a lot. <laughs> he wouldn't leave the dorm. He became depressed. He dropped out of college. Then in 2017, 11 years after their first interview on StoryCorps, Josh and his mom came back for a third time. Now Joshua has graduated from college with honors, but he is quick to say, not with high honors, just with regular honors. <laughs> and mom confesses to her son, I made a mistake. You weren't ready for college. I doubted my own judgment as a mother. Sarah explained to Josh that she had always tried to be there for him, to be his rock, but she remembers when her own mother died and she leaned on Josh and he became her rock. She found that their relationship of love and commitment was for her a reservoir of strength and grace. And then mom asked Josh this question. She said, did you know did you know that one day you would get better and graduate? Were you hopeful? And Josh said, no. That's how depression works. It's like someone is holding you down and putting your face in the dirt. We all have moments when it feels like someone is holding us down and putting our face in the dirt. It may last for a moment when a spouse or a friend betrays, or when a boss says, you've done a great job, but we've got to downsize. Or it may linger for a season when a doctor says the word Alzheimer's or autism. Sometimes we simply feel powerless to rise up. A family member stomps off in anger, refusing to speak. A bottle on the table bids us to come and drink, calling us into a downward spiral of addiction. We want to take a different way, but we don't. Ben Harper sings about this struggle in a song called, I'll Rise. He sings, you may trod me down in the very dirt, but still like the dust, I'll rise. 
Ben Harper writes a song of personal struggle rooted in his own life as an African-American male. He borrows the words from the famous poet, the famous actress, the famous tenured professor at Wake Forest, Maya Angelou. You may remember that Maya Angelou was abandoned by her own parents at age four, raped at age eight, a single mother at age 17, and originally earned her living dancing in a nightclub. Her story of resilience inspires Ben Harper to claim his own spiritual strength in a world where he does not always feel welcomed. He says, you may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me down in the very dirt, but still, like the dust, I'll rise. And then he goes on with humor in the song, inviting us all to imagine a different future. And this is my favorite part. He says, does my happiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I'll laugh like I've got an oil well pumping in my living room. That's a good line if you're from Texas, an oil well pumping in my living room. Some people hear in Ben Harper's song, I'll Rise, a call to worship. I'll rise to be in the presence of the Holy God, much like we did this morning. Some people hear in his song, a final personal victory after a lifetime of injustice and oppression. When at the heavenly hereafter, I'll rise to sit with Jesus in the presence of God. What I hear in Ben Harper's song is the song of resilience, the human spirit rising up despite the difficulties that we inevitably face on the human journey. I love this song, this poem, because it names the pain of real life, but it refuses to give that pain the final say over who we are. Like Psalm 1, it says that, yes, there is wickedness in the world. There's no sugarcoating it. We sometimes charge right down the wrong path. We are sometimes injured and hurt by those who scoff at us, but still we are able to rise. What we all need is a sustainable spirituality, a faith that does not crumble when times are tough. God gives us instructions, but God gives us more than that. In the final verse of Psalm 1, we are told that God watches over us. The verb watches is in Hebrew, yada. It means to know, as in an intimate relationship. It reads better, God embraces us. What I recall when I look back on that day of building Connor's furniture on the floor with the instruction booklet and the set of borrowed tools is I remember talking and laughing and listening all day long with my son. What lingers is a feeling of connection. God invites us to open our hearts to a way of life written in the Holy Word and to know that we too are embraced by a way that is beyond our own way. Will we let that song of God rise in us?